0: It's uh, time now for us to open God's Word together and to learn together about His will for our lives. This fall, we've been going through one of Paul's New Testament letters, his letter to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians, and we've been following that along and looking at the various issues that Paul faces and addresses. Um, And uh, what we're learning is that this church is in a a bad situation there's lots of difficulties that they're facing it's kind of a dumpster fire of tough stuff and Paul is speaking fairly clearly to them Uh, he's sharing the gospel he's sharing what Christ has done for them and inviting them and calling them to live a life worthy of that now uh, we're gonna get to the scripture reading in a second but I want to begin with something else Um, you know generally speaking Heaping shame on your, say, classroom or your children or your company or your church is not a great strategy for producing lasting change. But occasionally, it can provide a jolt or a shock to the system that wakes us from our slumber. And I thought I'd begin by showing a funny video today of an example of a preacher heaping shame on his congregation. So we'll watch that real quick. Today's reading comes from the book of Proverbs. If I may digress for a moment from my prepared message, I mean it when I say to you, You guys! Sometimes you're bad! Don't be jerks! You're supposed to be good! I'm in my office every day and somebody comes in and they're like, Hey, whoops! i like, don't! Dan, what is your deal? If anybody doesn't know, Dan is the worst. I took a vow to not say who was the worst, but it's Dan. You guys are making me look bad in front of God. What's that? Oh, look, it's Jesus. And he said, stop it. The word of the Lord. Very thankful to say I don't feel like doing that around here. Well, this video came to mind as I was reflecting on Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, because there's definitely some moments where he's just like that, exacerbated. And he responds just by, in a way, unloading. And the text we're going to be looking at today is one of those moments in the Scripture passage. So we'll pick up the story, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, the words will be on your screen, um, and let's, let's learn together. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 to 3. I'll be reading a bit, offering some reflection along the way. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world Are you not to judge, uh, and if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? So this is the issue happening in the church. There's a lawsuit happening of one kind or another. And it's likely that this is a civil an interpersonal matter and not a criminal case. Maybe two brothers are fighting over property lines and and where to draw them. Or maybe a sister slipped and fell down the stairs as she was leaving another sister's house and the medical costs were so high that she decided to sue to try to recuperate her losses. Whatever is happening, it's happening. And instead of settling the matter like mature Christians, they are heading to the courts And Paul is aghast. He is aghast. Really? You're going to have your dispute settled by a probably corrupt, ungodly official who doesn't care about God's word or God's ways? And aren't you mature enough to handle this yourself? Don't you know that the Lord's people will judge the world? What Paul's getting at here is a bit tricky to understand, but it's important if we are to understand his searing critique. Paul's referencing a passage from the book of Daniel. In Daniel 7, Daniel has a dream, and in that dream, power is taken away from the rulers and judges of this world, and that power is then given to the people of God. And then the people of God are given authority to judge the world. It's a vision of a day when the legislature and the courts will be taken away from the unjust and giving to God-fearing men and women. This end time establishment of the rule of the saints, it's not picked up or explained in detail in the New Testament, but it is assumed. It is assumed that in the new heavens and the new earth, Christians will reign with Christ and will join him in ridding the world of all the things that don't belong. With Christ our King, we will settle disputes. With Christ our King, we will transform swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. What makes Christians fit for such a role? What allows us to judge wisely, to, to, to settle matters appropriately? Well, We have God's spirit, and we have God's word. We know God's ways and how he wants us to live in his world. So if that's our future, participating in the judgment and restoration of the new heavens and the new earth, we should be able to render some of these judgments today, at least within our own body, the body of Christ. We're not babies in the ways of God, after all. My hunch is that the wisdom needed to settle most of the world's problems, especially interpersonal problems, is in this room already. We've got the Spirit. We've got the Word. We know the Gospel. Together we are being schooled in the art of forgiveness. Courts and lawyers have a way of multiplying problems Bring in a brother or a sister. Call a pastor or an elder. Don't you know that one day you will settle disputes for the world? Verse 4, Paul continues. Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned by the church? I say this to shame you. <laughs> this is this is Paul, you know, you guys... I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers? I thought you guys were spiritual, wise. Isn't that what they were boasting about back in chapters 3 and 4? Look at me. I follow Apollo. I am so wise. And yet no one to their shame, Paul says, is wise enough to sort out this dispute? And now they're making uh, God look bad in front of unbelievers? That all this is being dragged out in public is bad, but in Paul's mind, that's not the real problem. The real problem is that things have gotten to this point. Verse 7, we'll continue there. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you Means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Paul's speaking to the offended party here, and he doesn't have much empathy for them, but I actually have a lot of empathy for the offended party. It sucks. And it hurts to be wronged by a brother or sister, sometimes even doubly so. To hear maybe that someone is dragging your name through the mud or taking advantage of you in an unjust way, that keeps you up at night. I mean, that craving for justice within us is a strong craving. And the hurt of injustice leaves a deep mark. But here's the question for the follower of Jesus, and this is where I think Paul really offers something super important. The question is this, how do I follow my Lord in this situation? Is this a wrong that needs to be fought, or is this a wrong that needs to be absorbed and forgiven? Jesus showed us both ways. He overturned the money tables in the temple. He showed us what justice looks like. And when... Uh, it's a case that justice needs to be done. But Jesus, also in front of the Sanhedrin and uh, in front of the Roman soldiers, he allowed himself to be mistreated mistreated and beaten, stripped naked. They put a crown of thorns on his head. And what did he say? He said, Father, forgive them. Why not rather be wronged? Isn't that the way of Jesus? Isn't that the way of Jesus, not only as he's shown it in his life, but also as he taught in the Sermon on the Mount, where he said, You have heard that it was said, Eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, well, hand over your coat as well. Sometimes justice needs to be done, but sometimes, oftentimes, the way of Jesus is to absorb the injustice and forgive. The mature in the faith are learning to live life according to the pattern set out by Christ, which in many cases means, well, forgiving others just as God in Christ has forgiven you. So that's Paul's word to the offended party, but he has got words, strong words, for the offending party too. Verse eight, verse 8. Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters? Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. As it was the case with... Uh, the situation we heard about a couple weeks ago with the man was sleeping with his um, his father's wife. Paul's firm words here are directed towards those who are living in sin, not those who are occasionally sinning. There's a difference, right, between the wrongdoer who grows comfortable in their wrongdoing and those who are fighting against their sin nature and occasionally doing wrong. The former is far from the kingdom of God and in need of a transformative encounter with Christ, whereas the latter is in need of the support of the Christian community. Do you not know that those who grow comfortable in doing wrong, that they are far from the kingdom of God? Idolatry, not God's way. Having sexual relations with someone that is not your husband or wife... Not God's way. Thieving, conniving, swindling, being less than honest, being greedy and grabby, drinking to get drunk. Not God's way. And think of all the troubles that rise up when people live this way. This is why we have the need for courts and lawyers in the first place, to deal with situations caused by people like this. But that's that's not God's way. Don't you know the wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, in the midst of Paul's list of wrongs, there is one statement that perhaps may be stood out to you because it is quite controversial uh, and um, emotional, emotionally laden in our current time and place, both culturally and also in the life of our denomination. I sh- I'm sure you saw it. Uh, Paul says, "...nor men who have sex with men..." This is one of the Bible's seven or eight references to homosexual sex. It is not a big part of this particular text, but it is clearly referenced in a list that is um, clearly negative. Because this is an important and weighty issue, it deserves more time. And because it deserves more time, I'm going to give it more time. So not next week, but the week after, we will be returning to these verses and reflecting on these together. To do a fuller a fuller um, reading of this and understanding of it as well but for now let's return to the text and see where Paul goes next and this is a dramatic turn and he's really sharing the gospel here in a powerful way and that's what some of you were you used to be like that but but you were washed, and you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. For Paul, everything is grounded right here in this, in the great change that Jesus Christ has accomplished in us. That's what some of you were, he says to the offending party. But the old you is no longer what is most true about you. And what is most true about you now is that you've been picked up and cleaned up and put back into a right and holy relationship with God. You used to not have the Spirit, but now you have the Spirit of God. You used to be greedy and grabby and a swindling, thieving, conniving, but now... Now you have the spirit of God and you've been washed and cleaned and cleansed in that old life. It's no more. God has clothed you with his righteousness as if you have never sinned nor been a sinner, as the catechism says. This is what Jesus accomplished through his death and resurrection, and it's amazing. It's an amazing new reality. The Holy One without sin took on our greedy and grabby ways. He bore in himself the punishment that we deserved. What for? To clean us up, to forgive us of our sins, to present us as blameless before the the Father. Jesus absorbed the injustice that we might be the righteousness of God. And this fresh start and this cleanness, it's available, says the Bible, to all who come to Christ in faith. It does not matter what you've done or the wrongs that have been committed. Jesus will not shame you. He will cleanse you and incorporate you into his family. You've been washed. You've been sanctified. Not what, you're not that anymore. You're over here now. How do we live into this together? And what would happen if everyone in the church lived out of this new identity in Christ? Well, I don't think there would be many lawsuits among us. Now, thus far in my travels as a Christian, I am thankful to report that I have not met very many Christians who have gone to court to settle conflicts with other Christians. I have met many, or more than a few, let's say, who really have had trouble with forgiveness. And that's to be expected in some ways because getting wrong hurts and it can be hard to absorb the cost. And that's a process of learning how to forgive. This said, there are examples of litigation, sadly, in the body of Christ. About 14 years ago, the pastor and church council of a CRC near Hamilton was, uh, was sued by a disgruntled member who did not receive the job, the job in the church that she had applied for. And it was her opinion that the application process was less than fair. She felt discriminated against. And so instead of requesting to meet with the council to share her opinion, she lawyered up, and she sued the church. Three years and many legal fees later, the church and her pastor were vindicated. It felt like justice in the moment, but were there any winners in that case? I wonder what the judge thought as he saw these Christians trading blows Did that help to boost God's reputation? No, it did not. And is there not better ways to handle these kinds of interpersonal conflict? Yes, there are. Currently, the Presbyterian Church in Canada is is splitting. Traditional churches are leaving due to the PCC's um, open stance on same-sex marriage. Church splits are horrible things, and to make matters worse, in the Presbyterian system is not—it is the presbytery that owns the building and the land, not the congregation. Even though members have been taking care of the grounds and the building, sometimes for over a hundred years, still they do not legally own it. It belongs to the denomination. And so now, what do those congregations do that want to leave? If they leave, they lose their building, their equity in in the land. What should they do? Drag the issue before the courts, fight for their building, or absorb the loss and start again? Could not an equitable, amicable solution be struck by people who have the Spirit of God? I pray so. And I don't know what's happened in this congregation. I'm sure there are hurts. I don't know of any lawsuits, but I I don't know. And I think that's a good thing, that by and large we have avoided that. Something to keep working at. But now, um, I think a distinction needs to be drawn, uh, just so we are clear on this, between civil issues and criminal issues. Civil issues are issues that happen between people, sort of interpersonal conflicts, whereas criminal matters concern the laws of the land. Paul doesn't make the distinction here, but I think a distinction needs to be made. There's a big difference between, say, two brothers arguing over property lines and, say, murder or sexual abuse. Churches should handle civil matters, But I don't think we're set up to uh, handle criminal law cases, in which case we need to go to the authorities. People who break Caesar's law will need to deal with Caesar's courts. There's a difference between interpersonal conflict and a criminal offense. For instance, if I hear or receive word of some sort of sexual abuse happening, My first phone call is not to the elders of the church, but to the authorities. I'm obligated by law to do that. And I think that's a wise thing. But if we're following Jesus and we're living as his cleansed and redeemed people, then isn't it not true that both civil and criminal cases can be avoided? The real call and challenge in this text concerns our life together and our witness to a watching world. Here are questions I'm asking myself that I want you to ask of yourself Am I growing into my identity in Christ? Am I becoming more and more the kind of person who is able to manage myself in relationship with others? Am I growing in my capacity to absorb injustice with grace? forgiving just as God in Christ forgived me, forgave me? Am I growing in my ability to live as God's cleansed and redeemed child and so avoid the kinds of sins that break relationships and harm communities? And am I growing in wisdom and in my ability to help others sort through their disputes with grace and truth? I ask these questions of myself and I encourage you to ask them of yourself, too. In our greedy, grabby, and litigious society, may we, God's people, show the world a better way. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, uh, we are grateful um, that your posture towards us is not shame, 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 but the sending of your Son, the cleansing of our hearts and lives, the clothing of righteousness upon our shoulders. And Lord, we pray that you would give us the power today to live this out in a way that bears witness to your goodness. Where there's division or disputes or tense issues in our own body, Lord, I pray that you reveal those to us, that we can engage that with maturity and respect. Lord, I'm thankful for the power you've given to many to be able to absorb things that have been wrong and have been hurtful. Continue to help them on their journey, Lord. Continue to be Uh, just a powerful resource and presence in their life. And Lord, some of us too are walking further away from your kingdom in our growing comfort, comfort with sin. Lord, turn us around and bring us back on the straight and narrow path of following Christ.